Let's pray that God would help us as we reflect on these readings and, in fact, all of chapters 16 through to 19. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would give us clear minds and open hearts to appreciate what Genesis 16 to 19 means for us today. Help us in this regard, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard anyone say to you that they're concerned with real life? What they're concerned about is what goes on in the real world. Now, often when someone talks about the real life and the real world, uh, the implication often is that either you or someone else can't face up to real life and the real world, but rather prefer some sort of fantasy or head-in-the-sand type existence. Academics are sometimes accused of not dealing with real life, but rather living in ivory towers and things like that. But Christians too are sometimes accused of being similarly out of touch, uh, something which in, in many situations I'd strongly dispute. However, what anyone's view may be of Christians and their capacity to be in touch with the real world, the same criticism could never be levelled at the Bible. Because the Bible, far more so than Disney movies or revisionist histories or other skewed worldviews and philosophies, describes and addresses exactly the sorts of things that actually do take place in the real world the good stuff and the bad stuff. And really, Genesis chapters 16 through to 19 is a good example because if you're familiar with all these chapters or if you've read them through recently, uh, basically we see the best of life and the worst of life. Real, real life, the highlights and absolute lowlights in abundance. Now, the events in these chapters take place about thousands of years ago, well before Jesus and his ethical teaching, hundreds of years before the Mosaic law and and guidelines there on how we should live. And in fact, from what we can pick up from these chapters of Genesis, the world in which Abram and Sarai are part seems to be one which doesn't have the highest regard for human life, where misogyny is on display, poor parenting practices are there, and rampant selfishness seems to abound. And even Abram and Sarai, God's people in the midst of all this, they are actually flawed themselves, as we probably picked up last week and as we will see this week. But the really wonderful thing is that in these chapters and in in numerous other chapters, in this highly damaged world where people are falling so far short of the way they should live, we actually see God's kindness and secondly, God's justice shining through. And can I say that in Genesis 16 to 19 and today in 2020, it's the kindness and it's the justice of God that we in this world really need. Now we're continuing this morning, as you probably know, our Term 1 series. We're going to be going through Genesis chapter 12 through to chapter 50. The series is entitled Faith of Our Fathers. The passage today is chapters 16 to 19 and I've called the sermon God's Kindness and Justice. There are those words again. And an outline of the main point are, as usual, set out on the insert you would have received and are on the screen behind me. And we're basically just going to go through chapter by chapter. Uh, And I'm going to, there's quite a bit of ground to cover. So I'm actually hopeful that in this series you're perhaps reading the chapters you're going to hear preached on the Sunday the week beforehand. So perhaps some of you have read chapters 16 to 19 this week, or if you haven't, I hope you're vaguely familiar with chapters 16 to 19. And if you're not, why don't you go away and read chapters 16 to 19 afterwards and then perhaps read a few chapters ahead in preparation for next week. And what my intention is to basically give you a bit of a a summary, a brief summary of each chapter 
and then to highlight one or two applications out of each chapter, which hopefully we will find helpful. So, let me give you the story in Genesis so far. God's created the world, it's a good world, but people have rejected God, turned away from God, they've rejected God, started to mistreat others, and the world has just nosedived. Bad stuff has happened, but then we get to Genesis 12, and in uh, light amidst the darkness, God uh, makes some wonderful promises to this guy called Abram, and he says, look, go to this particular land, and he promises him three things. He promises that he will give him and his descendants the land of Canaan, he promises that God will make him into, promises that he'll make him into a great nation and he promises that all nations will be blessed through Abram and his descendants. And of course that ultimately leads to Jesus and how the whole world is blessed through him. Now last week you may have noticed that uh, in chapters 12 through to 15, Abram sometimes shows really quite remarkable faith and other times he doubts as well. He seems to move between doubt and faith, doubt and trust. If it sounds a bit familiar and it sounds a bit like your life, uh, yeah, it probably is. Now, when we get to chapter 16, where we pick up this morning, about 10 years have passed since the initial promises were made, one of which was that Abram would become the father of a great nation. Chapter 15 last week told us that his own flesh and blood would be his heir. Yet, at the start of chapter 16, his wife Sarai is still childless. Reflect on her situation uh, for a moment. If you're married and you're hoping to have children, but you haven't, uh, you may know or you may know of friends where that's, that's a very upsetting thing. But add to that the fact that your husband's been told that he's going to become the father of a great nation and you know, his offspring are going to you know, go on for generations and generations and you haven't done your part of the deal. You actually haven't given him a son or a daughter yet. Now, I, I think that could even actually emphasise how, how bad you could feel about the predicament. And so I imagine Sarai's under a fair bit of stress and pressure. She wavers between trust and, and doubt. And in this chapter, uh, she actually comes up with an idea. She actually suggests to her husband, hey, look, why don't I give you my Egyptian slave girl, Hagar, you can sleep with her, have a kid with her, and that can sort of carry on the family line. Now, um, I think we find that sort of suggestion today utterly appalling. But it was not an unusual practice back in that day and age. Some of you may have heard of Hammurabi's Code. It's an ancient Babylonian code from about the 18th century BC. It's carved onto this big rock. If you ever go to the Louvre Museum in Paris, some of you may have seen the Code of Hammurabi. Anyway, one of the parts of that basically says that it's uh, a wife could present one of her slave girls to her husband to bear a son for the marriage. So it was something rather which did go on. Now, just because, though, it was culturally acceptable at the time doesn't mean it was a good thing for Abram and Sarai to do, and it soon goes pretty quickly pear-shaped. I mean, for a start, um, Hagar does get pregnant, which I guess is, is good, but then Hagar starts to despise her mistress, Sarai, who's not pregnant. And then Sarai gets a bit put out about all this, and so she goes and accuses Abram, what have you done to me? Which is interesting when you think about how the whole thing came up. And so Abram, you know, really takes control of the situation and sort of says, oh, you do what you want. <laughs> and then Sarai starts to mistreat her slave girl, Hagar, who gets upset and runs away. Pretty sorry saga. Yet there is some light because when Hagar finds herself uh, in the desert, having run away, uh, one of God's messengers, God, one of God's angels, appears to her and uh, speaks with her and amongst other things, promises Hagar that her descendant 
will become a great nation as well. She'll have descendants too numerous to count. The angel encourages her to go back to her mistress, which she does, and her son Ishmael is born. Now in that chapter, chapter 16, in my view, no one really comes out of it that well. Uh, Abraham, or Abram as he then was, Sarai as she then was, and Hagar. I mean, Hagar probably is a bit better than the others, but it's a fairly sorry story. But one thing which does stand out as something of a light is the kindness of God. Consider God's kindness to Hagar. Hagar, there she is out in the wilderness where she may have perished. Uh, God sends one of his angels to her. The angel converses with her. God takes an interest in someone who is a female, an Egyptian and a slave. Now today we might sort of think, oh, big deal, you know, why shouldn't he? But in that day and age, which was fairly, you know, patriarchal, which was fairly nationalistic, which in which society was pretty stratified, the fact that God was interested in this female Egyptian slave girl and spent a bit of time helping her, um, that would have been highly noteworthy. We see the kindness of God. And then Hagar, in verse 13 of chapter 16, says something really interesting. The verse reads as follows. She, that's, that's Hagar, gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. She basically says, God actually sees me. She un he understands my situation. And then interestingly, God says that you should name your, your child Ishmael, which means God hears. So the whole story highlights that God sees her and God hears, presumably her. Even her, an Egyptian female slave. Now, I wonder whether you ever feel like uh, God is not aware of you and your situation. Perhaps you're not quite important enough, you think, to warrant God's full attention, that God is really you know, investing most of his time and energies into other people who are more important or more profitable or more productive or more whatever. I guess one thing which this story highlights, which the Bible teaches very clearly elsewhere, is no matter who you are, no matter where you are, God sees you, God hears you, and you are important to God. Think of Hagar, and it's true for each of us as well. Now, in chapter 16, I get the impression that Abram and Sarai were sort of, perhaps not at their highest level of trust in God. They were perhaps more down the doubt end at this time. Uh, their actions don't speak to me of total trust. But throughout uh, Genesis, uh, these chapters, we see Abram's faith is often tested. God makes various promises, and then uh, Abram's faith is sometimes tested when he wonders, well, how are these promises going to be kept? And in fact, right throughout Scripture, God is often making promises to people, uh, and we need to learn to trust him, even when on occasions it doesn't seem like, well, we don't understand what's happening. Uh, you know, Peter and Paul had to learn to trust Jesus. Mary and Martha had to learn to trust Jesus. What about today? Uh, we're told that God loves us and cares about us, but what about when things happen to us or our loved ones which we don't really want to happen? Perhaps we or one of our loved ones gets sick, perhaps terminally sick, yet we're told that God loves us. Are we going to trust God? Situation which I guess most of us are have or will find ourselves in. Now, a few weeks ago, I, on a Saturday afternoon, I went to a, a farewell for Art, uh, Bishop Ivan Lee, Bishop of Western Sydney, who's retiring as Bishop of Western Sydney. It was a Saturday afternoon. I went out, a whole lot of us gathered, and uh, 
the MC stood up and said, oh, unfortunately, um, the bishop is too unwell to attend today. Now, as you may know, Bishop Lee has been uh, struggling with cancer for about, I think, four or five years now, and he was too unwell to come. Apparently, he'd been in hospital for a few weeks, and everyone sort of like, ah, you know, it sort of changed the mood of things. But what came out of it was that uh, Bishop Lee, and uh, look, I don't know what the medical condition is, but I got the impression that maybe this could be nearer the end of the line, um, but that the bishop is trusting in God at this time and his family is trusting in God at this time. You know, horrible situation, difficult situation, yet trusting in God. Uh, God will often place us in situations which test us, but we need to look to God for his support, his strength, his help, trust in him, which seems to be what the bishop and, and his family are doing at this time, which I guess we all thought I find very encouraging. What's chapter 16? I won't go into quite as much depth with the following chapters, but chapter 17 is an encouraging chapter to us as well, and perhaps a little bit weird too, because it deals with the covenant of circumcision as well as other promises which God makes. Let's start with the promises. Have you ever found that you've had an experience which has perhaps been just a little bit disappointing? Hasn't quite lived up to expectations. A number of years ago, for reasons which now elude me, I was in the city and I thought, boy, I would like a quarter pounder from McDonald's. I was hungry and I had visions of just getting this hamburger and taking it and just hoeing into it and devouring it to crush my hunger. So I went to, I think, William McDonald's and ordered my quarter pounder and I sort of picked it up and it was about as thick as a Vegemite sandwich and I sort of, you know, sort of, sort of slipped into my mouth down my throat without even chewing it too much. It was a bit of a disappointment. Um, apologies to McDonald's and um, for everything like that. But uh, sometimes we can be a bit disappointed with what we're looking forward to. But the promises which God makes to Abraham, or Abram as he then was, are nothing like that quarter pounder. Uh, because God's promises to Abram are actually better than expected. They keep improving. Let me highlight. In Genesis 12, God says, I will make you into a great nation. In Genesis 17 verse 6, God says, I will make nations, plural, from you. Not just one nation, but a number. In Genesis 12, there's no mention of kings coming from him, but in Genesis 17, verse 6, it says that kings will come from you. You know, there was David, there was Solomon, there was ultimately Jesus. And also, whereas Genesis 12 describes God's covenant with Abram, uh, we learn in chapter 17 that this is going to be an everlasting covenant between uh, Abram and his descendants one which was going to go on forever. And in fact, if we're Christians, the Bible considers us children of Abraham and we are part of that eternal covenant as well. We also, which will be better than expected. Because if we're Christians, we sit here knowing that God can do, as it says in um, 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 9, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, these are the things God has prepared for those who loves us. He's generous in his promises. He provides us with things which are better than we expect, often in this life and absolutely guaranteed in the next. Once again, we see the kindness and generosity of God to Abraham and also by implication to us too. And then in his kindness, he gives uh, Abraham a helpful reminder of their covenant. Here we go, circumcision. All the males were supposed to get circumcised. Now, I highlight that it was the males, not the females, not the horrible practice of female circumcision, which is practiced in some parts of the world today, but male circumcision. And it was a reminder of the special relationship between uh, God and Abraham's family. 
um, the, the commitment they made to each other. I guess in the same way that a wedding ring you know, can remind you of various things, you know, your commitment to your spouse, your spouse's commitment to you, your commitment to God, God's goodness to you, etc. Um, so too, this sign was supposed to be a sign of God's commitment to them and their commitment to God. Sign, very kind thing to give. And also, uh, there's further kindness in verse 19 of chapter 17, when God tells Abraham that Sarah will bear a son who is to be called Isaac. It's getting more and more specific. Well, that brings us to chapter 18 and the three visitors. Now, uh, the story picks up that Abram's sitting near the entrance of his tent and three visitors arrive. Uh, Abram is all hospitality, welcoming them, and you get the impression that he knows that they're probably pretty special visitors. And as the story unfolds, we learn that two of them are, in fact, uh, God's messengers, angels, and, and one of them is God himself, presumably in a form where he's, I guess, hidden his glory to the extent that he can be talked to rather than just prostrated in front of. You know, he's obviously cloaked his glory. But Abram gets these three visitors. They have a bit of a chat. And amongst other things, they tell Abram and Sarah overhears that within a year, one year, Sarah will have a son, the promised Isaac. And then the story moves on into what was our second reading and really is the first full-scale prayer of the Bible. I wonder whether you thought of the interaction between God and Abraham there as a prayer. Because what is prayer? Speaking to God, conversing with God, perhaps interceding with God about something or other. And that's exactly what Abraham does in the second half of chapter 18. Um, God tells Abraham that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I'm going to go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. The implication is, if, it is, if it's horrible, uh, justice is going to come, uh, punishment will need to follow. Now, at this point, and I'm just guessing, I think Abraham is probably thinking of his nephew Lot, because Lot is living in Sodom, and he's probably thinking, oh, what about my nephew Lot? And so Abraham asks God, in verse 23 of chapter 18, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? God replies, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham continues. He respectfully asks, Well, what about if there are 45? God says, Look, I'll spare the whole city for 45. And then you heard the reading, it goes on. What about 40, 30, 20, 10 righteous people? In each case, God says he will spare the whole city if he can find that number of righteous people there. And I think this is an interesting example of prayer. Abram is clearly concerned. He has this extended dialogue with God. Uh, he expresses his concern. He does it in a humble way. And, and God sort of, I guess, interacts with him and gives him these responses. I guess it's a reminder that what we know from New Testament teaching, that there is nothing that we can't talk to God about. We can talk to God about anything which is on our heart. We can have an extended prayer time with him, you know, pouring our heart out, asking him, interceding, whatever we like. God wants to hear our, hear our prayers in the same way that he was happy to listen to Abraham here. And then the second thing which this interaction shows, I guess, is the justice of God. We learn that God is, and I think it's putting it in human terms that we can understand, God's going to go and check out whether Sodom and Gomorrah really are as bad as he's heard. Now, I guess this is just 
the way of saying that God is acting on the basis of what the reality is, on the basis of evidence. You know, he, he's acting on facts, not hearsay. And secondly, we learn that God won't indiscriminately judge the righteous with the unrighteous. He's going to be discerning. In fact, he's, he's even prepared to be generous. I mean, if there are 10 righteous people, he'll spare the whole place, right? So we say God checks out the facts. He has the facts. He's not indiscriminate. He's very generous. But we see when justice and judgment is needed, it will take place. But it will be just judgment. So God's judgment is just, we're reminded of here. Now, can I express the view that I think we want God, we want a loving God, we love a loving God, we love a kind God, we love a merciful God, but we also want a just God because we like justice being done most of the time. Uh, we don't like seeing people get away with things. Now, I'll keep this generic so as not to get too party political, but when we hear of political corruption, we sort of want right to come out. We want justice to be done. We hear someone has been murdered, we want the person who did it to be found and for justice to be done. I recently read uh, the following incident which occurred apparently overseas a few years back. I'll keep it in general terms. Uh, but I read of, uh, in a particular country, a gang attacked a certain village. A 21-year-old girl was taken captive. Her name was Nadia. She was taken to a slave market where she was purchased by a man who was a judge. The judge raped Nadia daily and beat her when she displeased him. When she tried to escape, he let his guards gang rape her. 21-year-old girl. Now, I expect that in that country, from what I know about it, that judge won't be convicted of anything to do with that. But you hear that, and it, it, it just infuriates me. And you want justice to be done. Well, one of the great things we know about the Scriptures is that God will bring about justice and judgment at the final judgment. God will. People won't get away with it. Justice will be done. Now, of course, there is forgiveness offered to everyone. And so I guess the message for us is we want to make sure when we get to the day of judgment that our sins have been forgiven. And if they're Christians, of course, they have been. Chapter 19, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. Well, the other two visitors, one of them was, of course, God, the other two were uh, angels or, or supernatural messengers. They go down to Sodom to check it out. And there they meet Lot, who is all hospitality. He says to the two visitors, please come and stay at my place. But then an uh, incident starts to occur where we get a hint at why Sodom was attracting God's holy wrath because Lot has the guests in his house and that night all the men of the town or the city gather around Lot's place and say, um, you know, send out those two men of yours so that we can have sex with them. Right. Now, I have read that in the ancient Near East, homosexual rape was sometimes used as a demeaning punishment for prisoners of war. Okay? But this wasn't a war situation. Not that it should have even been done in that situation. This was an opportunity for hospitality, not humiliation. Yet that is what the men of Sodom were wanting to do. But the story gets, continues in its horrendous vein because uh, Lot does something which I find utterly despicable and totally abhorrent. Now, he rightly seeks to protect his guests, but he wrongly does it by saying to the men, here, why don't you have my daughters? You can do with them as you wish, just don't t touch these men. Now, I, I just, that just boggles my brain. What's, what on earth is going on in that man's mind? I mean, he's probably terrified out of his wits, but still, I mean, just think of it. You wonder whether the whole ethos of, of Sodom has perhaps infected Lot a bit himself. 
Well, uh, that didn't have to happen because the visitors, the two people, were supernatural beings. They were perfectly capable of looking after themselves and actually Lot's family, so they protect him. And the visitors say to Lot, get you, your loved ones, get out of here. This city is going to get judged. And then some of uh, Lot's nearest and dearest escape with him and most of them then get away and Sodom and Gomorrah is comprehensively judged for their unbearable sin. Now, I, I think that God's judgment here is both an encouragement and a warning. I guess it's the encouragement that justice will be done and it's the warning uh, that um, you know, God will judge everything in the future and we need to make sure that we're ready for God's judgment. January we had the series um, which was entitled Number Your Days and you may recall that one of the things we're encouraged to do is to recall that you know, our days are numbered but also that Jesus will return and judge the world. And of course, when we meet Jesus on the day of judgment, we want to meet him as our saviour and our friend as forgiven people, which he longs to do for everyone. But we don't want to meet him as our judge. We don't want to take what we deserve because people will get what they deserve if they're not forgiven. A sobering thought. And then perhaps just one final thought from this chapter, which I think is really very relevant to probably every single person in this room. And that is that while Lot is spared, it's as if Lot is somewhat infected he has been negatively impacted by his surroundings. Let me tell you a bit about Lot. Uh, Abram says to Lot a few chapters earlier, look, you go and dwell in whichever part of the land you'd like to live. And Lot goes to live near Sodom in Genesis chapter 13. By the time we get to Genesis 14, Lot is not living near Sodom, he's living in Sodom. And when we get to chapter 19, sure, he's... Um, offering hospitality to his guests, when they get into trouble, he offers his own daughters as protection. I mean, where did that come from? And then when the, the, um, the messengers say to Lot, flee the city, if you read chapter 19, he sort of flees, but he's hesitating as he goes. And in fact, his wife hesitates too much. You see, his family's been infected as well. It's not just, you know, Lot's actions don't just affect him, it's impacted his family. Uh, his, his wife seems to have been impacted by... Sodom as well. She looks back and, and dies in the process. And then when Lot and his daughters do get away, if you happen to want to read the end of chapter 19, you will read that um, Lot's daughters get their father drunk and sleep with him so they can have kids with him. Now, where did that come from? You know, the whole family seems to have been, I think, impacted by Sodom. Now, I guess the warning uh, for us who live in the real world, which is sometimes so absolutely wonderful, but it sometimes is so horrendously evil, is that we need to be aware of the sort of influence that the world has on us. There are some wonderful influences which the world can give to us, but then there are some really negative ones as well. Now, as Christians, if we're Christians, uh, we're supposed to be thermostats, not thermometers. What do thermostats do? They, they impact the temperature around them. They sort of call the shots. But what do thermometers do? They just reflect, or, you know, reflect the temperature which is around them. As Christians, we're supposed to be light and salt in the world. We're not supposed to be compromising uh, to the world. Uh, a number of years ago, I was talking to a young Christian man who was interested in, I'll put this in generic terms, who was interested in joining a, um, let's call it a community service organisation, uh, an organisation which I would certainly generally endorse. And I said, oh, it's good for you to join this. You're interested in it. Um, it's a good community service. And by being involved in this, you can be a Christian and, you know, in effect, be a th thermostat. Probably didn't use those words, but that's what I encouraged him to do. Uh, my observation of this man over the few years since then is that, in fact, he hasn't been a thermostat. Unfortunately, he's been more of a thermometer. I don't think he's done his Christian life any good at all. Uh, it, it seems to have 
stagnated, if not, if not worse. You know, we need to be aware of the circumstances around us. Now, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I tended to think that, thanks to God, I was more of a thermostat than a thermometer. And I think probably, thanks to God's grace, I probably was. But perhaps I wasn't as good as I thought. Because in 1995, I started to think about going to Moore College, which is the, the training institution where a lot of ministers go. And as I thought about it, I noticed there was this little voice in the back of my mind. And it said to me, Oh, Stephen, don't go to college and become a minister. That is for lightweights, mate. That is for lightweights. Now, I grew up on the North Shore, and which was a fairly um, achievement-orientated culture, and I was, I guess, certainly part of that. And I guess I would take it in without realising it, the attitude that, you know, more college, Anglican minister, it's for lightweights. You know, do something proper. You know, it's okay to go to church, but don't, don't go and do that, for goodness sake. You know, it, it had been impacting me. And when I was thinking about making the decision, I was aware that that thought was there in the back of my mind. So I guess we need to take care and pray that we want to be in the world, but not of the world. Now, we're not going to be perfect, but we want to minimise the negative impact the world has on us and maximise the positive salt and light aspects that we can have on it. Let's take the warning from Lot and his family. Let me conclude. Uh, real life. Real life is something which the Bible is concerned with, writes about uh, and speaks to us in relation to. And this passage highlights that what is really needed in real life, in the real world, is the kindness of God and the justice of God. We see God's kindness and justice in these passages. We see God's kindness and justice most clearly in Jesus a number of years later. And we also see God's kindness and justice in the world today. And so I guess the unifying thought as I was reflecting on these chapters was thank goodness for the kindness and justice of God. Let me pray. Father, we um, do thank you for your kindness to us and so many millions of other people. We also thank you for your justice that right will take place in the end. And Lord, we particularly thank you that in Jesus uh, we can actually escape the justice which we actually deserve uh, because of your kindness. So we thank you for your kindness and justice and help us to live in the light of that, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.